Today's message is going to be uh, two parts. We'll finish up at the house um, in the afternoon service. Um, all kind of have the same theme, and so there was a lot of content there, and, and so I uh, just wanted to kind of break that up a little bit. You know, I've been using Paul Chappell's book just to uh, help you to understand some of the things you say. I've, I've heard this somewhere before. We've gone over the book, Making Homework, and I'm using it as an outline to guide and to preach about the family. And though I use a fair amount of direct content from the book, I have taken some detours, added some thoughts, backed up sometimes and remixed things as I felt led by the Lord. Though there's a great emphasis on raising children in the messages, we must remember that there is application for everyone. Don't tune, tune out. There, there's something for everybody here. For single people, parents, grandparents, children, it all applies. Now today's message will be heavily weighted toward mothers. Just so happens. <laughs> Yet it applies to everyone. So using an allegory of the physical building of a home, think about it. It starts with buying a piece of land first, right? Uh, well, that is if you are of age, right? Uh, you have to be of age to buy a piece of land. It's same spiritually. Until you are saved, until you have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have no rights to spiritual land from God. No, N-O, Jesus. N-O, no, spiritual life. K-N-O-W, no Jesus. K-N-O-W, no spiritual life. Colossians 3.1, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead. And it says your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. I love that verse. That ought to be a key verse for every born-again believer in Christ. Folks, when we are saved, we have the deed to great spiritual fulfilling purpose in our lives. It's a land we are to fall in love with, to be consumed with, to work and to beautify it for one singular purpose, to give God the glory. Now we went over Psalm 145 where David's heart burst, burst out with this thought. It's a good psalm to read, to reset your purpose in life as a Christian. But how do we do this? It's by seeking God and following His leading by the Holy Spirit of God inside you given at the time of your salvation. John 14, 17 says... Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Ephesians 1.13 In whom ye also trusted after that ye had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. John 16.13, Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, 
For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Every person born has the opportunity to be a child of God, to receive a unique job from God, and given everything they need to achieve that in their life. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What a wonderful verse that is. Until you realize that in Christ you are one of a kind, special, designed for a purpose that cannot fail, when led and empowered by the Spirit of God, you will be constrained by an old, fixed, limited mindset. But when you see yourself truly as God sees you, you will be, in what we talked about last week, a growth mindset. This is the perfect mindset that is to rule your entire life, a mindset on giving God glory. Second Peter 3.18 says, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory now and forever. Amen. We must have the mindset to grow in the Lord. We must have the mindset to give out the glory of God through his gospel. We must see ourselves and others as unique, wonderfully created beings, each occupying a unique purpose that works together in unity, that there is no comparison, that we should not strive to be like others or to compare ourselves with each other or compare our kids or compare our kids with other kids to mark success by the world's standards or to aspire to be someone else. Now, I want to read a little story Beth once published in the church bulletin that illustrates this thought. I just happened to run across it if it's good. And for you coffee drinkers, this would be special interest in this. A group of alumni, highly established in their careers, got together to visit their old college professor. Conversation soon turned to complaints and stress in the work and life. Offering his guest coffee, the professor went to the kitchen and returned with a large pot of coffee and an assortment of cups, porcelain, plastic, glass, crystal, some plain looking, some expensive, some exquisite, telling them to help themselves to the coffee. When all the students had a cup of coffee in hand, the professor said, if you noticed, all the nice looking expensive cups were taken up leaving behind the plain and cheap ones. While it is but normal for you to want only the best for yourselves, that is the source of your problems and stress. Be assured that the cup itself adds no quality to the coffee in most cases, just more expensive, and in some cases even hides what we drink. What all of you really wanted was coffee, not the cup, but you consciously went for the best cups, and then began eyeing each other's cups. Now consider this, life is the coffee, and the jobs, money, possessions, and position in society are the cups. They are just tools to hold and contain life. The type of cup we have does not define nor change the quality of life we live. Sometimes by concentrating only on the cup, we fail to enjoy the coffee God has provided for us. And all the coffee drinkers say, amen. <laughs> All right, so we became of age. 
We inherited that deed of life's fulfillment to magnify God. We have begun building that spiritual house. We've talked about the foundational walls of that house built upon the Word of God as one unit strategically reinforced, fastened together in doctrine like rebars inside a concrete foundation walls. But those foundations walls has two sides to them. The outside part of the wall able to stand up against the harsh environment of the world, the flesh and the devil, it's called truth. The other side of that wall, the inner part, is what insulates and protects. It's where peace, safety, and warmth is retained. It's called love. Ephesians 14 says, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. You know, I'm so glad that we don't live in the hard, cold, damp atmosphere of castles. As great as Biltmore Castle, who's been to Biltmore Castle? A few of you. It's as, as extravagant and beautiful as it was, it was deemed ineffective to heat and coal and not really an inhabitable, a good inhabitable place. You know, truth without love is as ineffective as love without truth. The most vital need for a child inside their home is to know that he or she is loved and accepted. Not for what he or she does, but for who he or she is. It is a place we call home. That's what makes house home is love. When properly furnished, it's a place of love, belonging, and acceptance. That is what makes your home special. The very basis of salvation is love and acceptance. Ephesians 1.5, having predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Man, that's precious words there. We're accepted in the beloved. No other thing. Nothing of our works. We believed on him. We become a child of God. We're accepted as children of God. Nurture is love. Or Ephesians. Now, let me say it this way. God ex accepts us and loves us. right? But he has also committed us to be conformed into his image. We are to raise our children likewise. Ephesians 6, 4 says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Nurture is love, the acceptance, and the encouragement. Admonition is specific Instruction, instruction that should come by example and authenticity from you as parents. Think of nurture on one set of the scales and admonition on the other set of the scales. There should be a balance between the two. And, you know, it's interesting that I continue, you go back, you, you have truth and love. You have these balances that, that, that balance each other out. But many times there's imbalance in the home. I've kind of put a term to them. I call them whatever homes. Some parents are neglectful, just totally neglectful in their homes. Just let the kids do whatever. 
Others are permissive. Give them whatever they want. While some are authoritarian, constantly on them for whatever. But parents should seek to be, we'll use the term authoritative. Very high in love, nurture, and high in control, admonition. It's a balance with a heavy weight of just growing both of those in balance. It is emphatically saying, I love you, and I love you enough that I'm not going to let you go down a bad path. It is the balance of love and truth, and the way we convey it is through influence. Influence. The title of the message is Providing the Right Influence in the Home. Let's pray. Father, it took a little while to get here, but we're going to be talking about influence. We'll see a heavy weight on the mothers and grandmothers and the influence that they have on the children. But we are all to have an influence, not just in our families, although that is priority, but influence to others, to the world. And Lord, there's some things that we need to have right to have the proper influence. Now I pray that you'd speak to our hearts and lives. We pray especially you speak to mothers today in, in such a way that would encourage them. And speak to each one of us and teach us how to be the right influence. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, making influence is inevitable. It can be incidental and unintentional. Unintended influence. Losing your temper when you don't realize your child sees it. it happens to all of us. Negative influence. Sending a bad influence to them. On the other hand, it could be something positive that was unintended. For your child to see when you go over and you sneak a little kiss with your wife and you tell her you love her and they, they weren't meant to see it but they see it and that's a good influence. You know, much can be intentional influence like reading bedtime stories or one of the things that have kind of happened with uh, Esther and Tim's boys is uh, we have a wrestling matches, <laughs> you know. Uh, all sorts of things that can be intentional. Um, could be just an afternoon picnic somewhere, you know, something special that we can do. One of the best stories of influence was that of Timothy. Though he may have had an unbelieving father, his mother and grandmother were able to influence him in the Lord. Moms and grandmas have great influencing power upon the children. One main reason... They inherently have more T-I-M-E. They spend a lot of time with them. Why is influence so important? If you don't influence them, the world will. The world will. But this influence that we must have must be driven by a motivation of passion within yourselves. 
2 Timothy 1.5 says, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Paul, speaking to Timothy here, seeing what he saw, he saw a passion in his mother and grandmother, and he saw that that passion of influence is contagious. The spirit of faith by his mother and grandmother seemed to be a contagious influence upon Timothy. You'll see it in life, and you know, there's nothing like moms. That the influence of a mother, a good mother, or a good grandmother. People today make sure they they say something to mom to tell them they love them. Where did Daniel get his excellent spirit? His place in atmosphere was not a place of great encouragement at that time. Nor his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I think a couple of things. Perhaps he had parents of great influence and spirit behind him. But I see Daniel made a choice, a choice to have a growth mindset in the Lord. To grow in the Lord regardless of what his situation was. What is your spirit? Especially when things go wrong or not your way. When someone angers you. When somebody irritates you. When the umpire makes, <laughs> makes what you believe is a bad call, and whether you are right or not, how do you handle it in spirit? Children, pick up your spirit. A child needs to see a positive spirit a steady spirit, and a peaceful spirit. When you see your children struggling with the wrong spirit, perhaps it is a bad example they see in your life, in your marriage, or in the church. Not only does that influence need to have your a passion behind it, it needs to be an influence that leads our children to Christ. 2 Timothy 3.14, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Again, speaking to Timothy here, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. There's a saying out there, it's an old saying, God has no grandchildren. Every person, every child, comes to Christ on their very own. It's totally their choice. I can't take them there. They have to believe it. They have to want it themselves. They have to come to God on their own. And it's that salvation that's going to make the big difference in their life. A difference between heaven and hell, but also the difference of having the Holy Spirit influencing them in this life. Now, I'd like to give just a few tips for leading children to Christ. Number one, keep it simple. Mm. You need to be at a very simple, you know, really salvation is very simplistic, especially for children. You know, as adults, you learn a lot more and it becomes harder and there's a lot more things you need to come to grips with. As children, it can be very simple. Number two, look for the Holy Spirit's involvement. God 
when God works on somebody, you know it in your life, you'll see the conviction. You'll see God just personally working in them, in their life. We need to look for that Holy Spirit's involvement. We need to emphasize the basic, the basic plan of salvation. We need to ask questions, but not leading questions. Just ask them what they think about something. You'll, you'll find out if, they're, if they've really got the right knowledge, the right things in their mind, that they, they really truly understand uh, what salvation truly is. But don't give them leading questions that help them to answer it. Let them answer it. You'll know whether they're catching on or not. Watch for the spiritual desire on the child to be saved. Just keep this, keep it in prayer. They'll come to you at the right time when they have a desire. And then afterwards, let the child tell you it's when they got saved. Let them rehearse that. Don't tell them about when they got saved and, and put that in there. Let them tell you about their salvation. We're going to take the Lord's Supper Wednesday. I have in my mind, I think we should have testimonies. We don't do that a whole lot, but I think it would be a good idea uh, to do that. Follow with believer's baptism now. In this world today, um, you know, back, back in the time of the early church, it was just really like simple and obvious what you did, and bam, bam, bam. Today, sometimes there's a lot of misunderstandings and, and things, but uh, once that child understands, they should get baptized. That's important. It is important to be baptized, to, be, uh, to, to know what that means and to understand it. And then lastly, don't be embarrassed if there's later a need for assurance. Probably going to happen. We're kind of people of doubt a lot of times. But to don't be worried or embarrassed of that situation. Just, just work with that and, and, and walk through that. So we have an influence that has to have a passion behind it. We have an influence that should lead our children to Christ. I know that sounds obvious, but we can get off too. I mean, we should be praying for that. We should be working for that. We should be looking for that. And then an influence consisting of developed boundaries. Developed boundaries. Moses' parents, especially his mother, Jochebed, must have instilled some things very early in Moses' life. Hebrews eleven twenty four by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. What a statement that is. That mom didn't have much time with Moses. There were some deep things instilled in that boy's life. On the other hand, Eli the priest did not have or at least enforce standards in his home. 1 Samuel 3.12 says, In the day I will perform against Eli all the things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth 
because his sons made themselves vile and he restrained them not. Samuel, as great as he was, had wayward children. 1 Samuel 8, 1, And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. You know, though it's not said, it leaves us to wonder why Samuel's boys turned out the way they did. Here's a few things to consider. Samuel did not have a motherly influence growing up. Maybe once a year, Hannah would visit Samuel. And Samuel grew up seeing Eli's inaction to correct his sons in the service of the Lord in the temple. It's interesting that Samuel's sons turned out much like Eli's sons. These were Hannah's grandchildren. But I don't hear much about Joel and Abiah's mother or grandmothers like you hear about Timothy's mother and grandmother. With Samuel's boys, we don't really have a direct reason. And you know everybody, like I said, has to answer for themselves. But with Eli's boys, we are given a strong reason because his sons made themselves vile and he restrained them not. It's vitally important that we set standards of living in our family, but standards should be built upon a foundation that first starts with biblical commands. Upon that, we build biblical principles, and upon that rest standards. A command is obvious. 1 Peter 1.13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end, for the grace that is brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Holy is to be set apart. Apart from what? Apart from the former lust, the lust of the world. Another direct command, 1 John 2.15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let's add another direct command. Galatians 5.16, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the lust flesh... For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. From these commands, and many others, we can set forth a very clear and general principle to live by. My lifestyle is to reflect the holiness of God. That it is normal for a Christian to be quite different from the rest of the world. You should be. You're failing if you're not. That, the satisfaction of the old fleshly desires and the love of the world is totally against God's love and obedience to God's spirit. There's no in between there. Not even close, but in direct opposite, opposition to loving God by the spirit of God. From this principle, we should develop standards in the area of alcohol, dress, entertainment, friendships, and all areas of life that will keep us from being wholly separated unto God. One might say, why not go straight from the command to the standard and skip the principle? That's, that's what people do when they want to justify what they want to do in their lives. 
because they're going to come up and ask you to quote a direct verse on that for that standard you keep. Give me a verse. But the problem with that is the same problem you have with the law. The law is weak. It can't cover everything. I'm going to give you a silly example. Matthew 5, 29. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that the whole body should be cast into hell. Well, the verse mentions specifically the right eye, not the left. So if I close my right eye and offend with my left, then it's okay. I know that sounds silly. But what people are trying to do is justify living in the flesh and loving the world and claiming God at the same time. It does not exist. The command is there. The principle is made, and we can apply the principles. Have you ever heard, you can look but don't touch? It's a lie. Another one I heard from a preacher's grandpa to his grandson. His grandson told me. He's telling him it does not, and he bought into it. He was like buying into it. He thought this was funny. And good. It does not matter where you get your appetite as long as you eat at home. Speaking of faithfulness to your wife. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount preached this message loud and clear. Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Jesus took direct commands. He laid down principles and then he gave standards to live by. The standard, don't look and lust. It's not okay. That's a standard we're going to keep. We're going to watch our eyes and what we look at. Another big one is the use of alcohol. Many things cited in the Bible to permit the use of alcohol. But this and other related things are really just a way for people to justify their fleshly desires. The book of Proverbs is a book that sets forth principles to set standards by. Proverbs 21, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. But the lawyer Christian will point out if you are deceived thereby. Only if you're deceived thereby. But why do people drink alcohol? To be deceived, to get a high, to get loose, to get loose or get someone else loose, to do the things you would otherwise not consent to do, you lose your good discernment. There's just not a good reason. I'm not going to defend a standard not to drink based on direct scriptural commands, but rather by general principles supported by biblical command. The same goes with other standards. One person uses the word of God to justify the flesh. He will avoid building biblical principles. Another will justify and impose standards on others by claiming biblical command that may not even be there. They'll just use the Bible just to get over the top of somebody and be bigger and better and stronger and more spiritual and you aren't. Yet there are others who are trying to be more Christ-like, to understand God's commands, to build principles on those commands, to enact standards that will honor those principles, not for anybody else, but for themselves, to mortify the deeds of the flesh, to bring honor and glory to God. This is called humbly growing in the Lord. Our life ought to be a life of growing and cultivating standards. Sometimes we get off a little bit. You know, we ought to look at other people like when they have this standard, 
And maybe be curious about it. Just ask them. If they have the right heart, they're just going to tell you what's going on in their life and heart, what they're trying to do. It might be interesting. It might be encouraging. It might be challenging for you a good thing. Families need to set standards. Churches need to have standards. But standards should be built on principles and principles built on the commands of God. Standards are like fences of safety. The interior walls of the Christian home are walls that contain love and acceptance. They should have a large level of nurture, care, gentleness, peace, but also should have an equal balance of admonition or instruction in them. Your home needs to be a place of influence, especially for your family. And when done right, it, you will be set apart and you will be, what the Bible says, salt and light to the world. Now, you're going to find out that sometimes at close to home, we have Bible study and we turn off the lights. Then, at the end, Andy gives a warning, the lights are coming on because it's like, bang. You're going to find sometimes that's how you're going to be to some people and then go, wow. Sometimes when you live right and you do right and you set standards, you're going to convict Christians. They might react to you. Oh, holier than now. But what you're doing is you're convicting them. That's a good thing. Actually, it's not that you mean to do it. It's just, it's just how it is. It's nature. We should be different. With heads bowed and eyes closed and a pianist coming to play. This is a challenge of what kind of influence is inside your home. Are you influencing with your own passion and love for God and love of his word? Is there a high balance level of both nurture and admonition? Or is there a lot of permissiveness or just a lot of hard rules and low in love? Have you set a priority in prayer for your children's salvation? Do you have well-developed standards for yourself and family? And are you growing and cultivating those standards? Where are you at? Moms, you're at home so much. You just have so much time with the children. How are you influencing them? Here am I, Lord. Send me. I will serve you faithfully. Hear my Lord. Send me. Amen. Thank
thanks for your attention. I pray the Lord spoke to your heart, encouraged you in the home and in the influence. This afternoon, we're going to go over some specific things in the home that we can do. They're very practical things, and uh, I hope you'll get something from that as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessed word. Thank you for the opportunity to come together, to hear your word, to, uh, to obey it, to, to, to let it sink in to our lives, to correct us. That's good. To encourage us, to keep us going in the, the right way. Now, Father, I just pray you bless each person. Bless the fellowship we'll have at the house, the food, and, and all that's said and done over there as we celebrate mothers today. But most of all, we celebrate you, the one who came and died on a cross to save each one of us, that you knew each one of us, and you want to draw us to you. Thank you for such a great salvation, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.